This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. Hi, friends. How are we doing? Okay, this was such a blast of a conversation to have. I brought on Leah Payne. She wrote the book, God Gave You Rock and Roll. Guys, buckle up. I'm telling you right now, this is a journey down memory lane. We go through CCM, Christian Contemporary Music, and we talk about all the bands, all the bands. And listen, as a professional musician who grew up in this world, it was so much fun to talk to someone who is an expert who actually like focuses in on this subject and wrote a book about it. We talked about so many bands. In fact, we're going to have music throughout the CCM world playing in between the interview to help you also feel the nostalgia. So I hope you enjoy this episode. It's a little more lighthearted, but still a lot of fun and, and, and hits some serious tones. So Leah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It meant the world and it was so much fun. We should definitely do a part two. Friends, of course, as always, thank you so, 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 so much for listening to the show. It means everything to have you here with us. If you want to support the work that we do, please like and subscribe to the podcast. Downloads really help us and also giving us a rating would be super helpful. Some people have been asking me, what's the best way to support the work you're doing? Obviously, as many of you know, we are a nonprofit organization, so direct donations are the most effective. But Ad revenue is a growing portion of our income, and the podcast is our main source of that. So listening to this episode, downloading the episode, listening through the ads, that kind of stuff really helps us because we do get a cut of that ad revenue, and that helps cover our costs to produce the show. And hopefully you can tell that we really are working on giving you more consistent podcast content that hopefully is really engaging and also helping you as you navigate a better path forward in your faith. And the reason why we're able to do that is because we have revenue to put towards paying someone like Noah to produce the podcast, to go through it, and to think with me better ways of bringing you 
this content in more engaging form. So listening to the podcast, subscribing to it, downloading it, the ad revenue is helpful. And of course, just straight up donating also means so much and also helps us out. It is the fuel to the car. Many of you know about Project Amplify. It's our content evolution campaign to bring you more credible voices in more ways, whether it's the podcast or whether it's my new monthly segment with Andrew Whitehead on Christian nationalism, or it's our YouTube or it's Instagram. We really feel like we have, we have an obligation to use our platform to help amplify the voices of people who are doing amazing work. So your donations go to making that possible. I cannot thank you enough. We are completely at the mercy of donors. 560 monthly donors make this work possible. That's less than 1% of our total audience. We are trying to double that. We're trying to get to over 1,000 monthly donors. Let me tell you something, friends. It doesn't take much. If 500 people donated $10 a month, which is very little, that means it's $5,000 a month that we can use to produce more and more content, to hire the right people, to have the editors, et cetera. I will tell you as someone who does this full-time, it is a lot of work, more work than you think. It takes time to plan the episodes. It takes time to record them. It takes time to edit them. If you're going on YouTube, it takes even more time to make those videos, plus our normal Instagram content. There's a lot going on, and donations make the work possible. And also help me be able to have the right people around me to make the best content possible that hopefully is engaging and also helping you find better paths forward in your faith. Thank you so much for your support. You can donate via our show notes. All donations made in the US and in Canada are tax deductible. All right, friends, enjoy this trip. Enjoy the nostalgia. Enjoy going, oh yeah, that band. I haven't thought about them in a long time. Here's my conversation with Leah Payne. Talk to y'all later on. Hey, this is Jared McCrory in Montgomery, Alabama, and I am a TNE donor and so thankful to be able to give a little bit to help make this work possible. I'd been listening to the TNE podcast for a few months and it had become a regular for me with the other great podcasts I listened to to help me with my own evolving faith journey and just have been so thankful for the amazing work that Tim does for the diversity of voices that he brings on to the podcast that I've just found so helpful for my journey. And I want others to be able to find the same thing. This work is so important and is needed now more than ever in uh, the craziness that we're all living in. So keep it up. Glad to be a small part of the team. I hope others will join in giving so this work can continue. Take care. Dr. Leah Payne, it's great to have you on the podcast again because every now and then the demonic forces that be, the (laughs) Harry Potter forces of the world work (laughs) against me and you unfortunately were the latest victim of that because this is our... We've rescheduled three times. So many times. I yes. had you on during an, during a, a recording, and we had to stop because things were just out beyond our control. Yes. So here it is: New Year, new recording. You're on the podcast finally. Thank you for making time for the fifth time uh, today. I appreciate it. I am so delighted. It did actually feel like it was getting comical at one point, but you know, I grew up. Pentecostal, so I was just like, we're going to power on through. Maybe it needed to be in an even year. That's someone probably. needed a hedge of protection. That's what it comes down to. That's right. You know? that's and you, right. you clearly did not have one until yeah. right now. So I was blowing my shofar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, we're, we're recording this on January 3rd. So how was your new year? I, I need to know. Was it relaxing for you? 
Yes, my new year was very quiet, which is, mm. you know, that's that's I'm I'm at the age where a quiet new year is not a bad thing. So, it was very quiet. It was very laid back. I confess to being in bed before midnight. We celebrated midnight at 9 p.m. because I'm on the West Coast and watched the ball drop. And ta-da! How about uh-huh. you? <laughs> yeah. Do you mind me asking, how, how old are you? Well, oh, I'm 44. Okay. I'm 35. Mm-hmm. And okay. so I have two kids under four. That That's the age range I'm in. Now, yes. I have a very unique situation where for many years of my life in my 20s and up really, really until COVID, me and a bunch of my friends would do a 10 to 10 party every New Year's, 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. Oh, gosh. Okay, and we would do wow. tournaments and poker tournaments and Mario Kart tournaments. And there was like 45, 50 people who would show up to this thing. And by the way, it was it was dry. No one would drink. That's It, it was yeah. that kind of church thing, you know? But it was it was great. We I loved it. And then yeah. COVID hit, so obviously we, we didn't do it. And they... Between COVID and now, a lot of the people in those circles had a bunch of kids, including myself. And so this year was the first year for me where it was like, well, we went to one of their parties. It wasn't the same thing. It was like a, hey, 6 p.m. to 1 a.m. thing. And me and my partner, Sarah, we were we had no kids. My mom took the kids. So picture this scenario. I'm at someone's house in their garage. They're all doing karaoke. It's 11.25. And I'm like. (laughs) I'm tired as hell. Sarah's tired as hell. I'm like, why are we staying up later than we need to when we have no kids and are guaranteed to have the ability to sleep in on on New Year's Day? Absolutely. So we left. We oh hell yeah, we did. I didn't watch the ball drop. (laughs) I was sleeping. That's we woke up woke up at nine o'clock. We got sushi at eleven fifteen. Oh early lunch. And then I we, Wonderful. We, we, we went to my parents' house and got the kids. I mean, so that was my New Year's, but it was such so different from that like normal rhythm mm-hmm. of like 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. all night, breakfast at six o'clock. Like, no, it was not that at all. I was like, I'm too old now. You know, I'm I'm an older parent, so I have children who are four and seven. And mm-hmm. I also feel the I mean, the the just the prospect of a full night's sleep. I can't remember the last time. I really can't because anytime I travel, then I'm like out of sorts because I'm worried about kids. And I apparently people who are more experienced parents tell me that you never really stop doing that. So sometimes I'm like, will I ever sleep? I'm not right, sure. Right, right, right. Well, <laughs> I, I would imagine you it. don't, right? Because what happens when they're 17 and driving out late at night? Ah, can't yeah, even exactly. How yes. are we going to, how, how am I, I, I can't sleep. I still check in on my two-year-old at night. I'm like, is he breathing? Aww. Okay. Yeah. Yes. It's just like in my yeah. head, right? Mm-hmm. We, we're, we're trying to sleep train my oldest who's still in bed with us. And I'm like, Sarah, New Year's resolution needs to get <laughs> out of our bed. He's bed. almost four. <laughs> and so I moved him to his bed last night. He woke up almost sleepwalking and tried to go downstairs. So I'm oh, like, no. nope, back in bed so I can uh, sleep. So it's like, I don't know if I'm ever going to get back to normal sleep ever. Yeah, I, I sort of wonder if you you kind of kiss that goodbye. I'd be so happy to be wrong. Someone tell me. So I one kiss of your listeners goodbye. can tell us. I'm kissing sleep goodbye. Yeah. You know, I'm kiss kissing goodbye. it all goodbye. And now, thanks to your book, I'm going to be kissing rock and roll, Christian rock no, and roll goodbye. Oh, don't. How's that segue? You like that? Oh, that's great. That was That's pro level right there. I mean, again, <laughs> new year, new me. Silence is when words are not enough. With every breath I take, I will give thanks to God above. For as long as I 
But really, we are here to talk about a book that you wrote. You actually had me on your podcast along with yes. Riley Onishi in D.L. Mayfield, I believe. Yes, and that was I, a fun I, episode. Oh, and I felt so professional. You had music <laughs> all throughout, and it was like clips of me and clips of Brad. So you wrote a book, God Gave Rock and Roll to You. It comes out mm-hmm. in February, and it's all about CCM, Christian Contemporary Music, in that whole world, which me yes. being a professional drummer who grew up in that world, it's like kindred spirit. So I'm so excited <sighs> to nerd out on bands that maybe like five people will hear and be like, oh, my God, I love I them. Love you that. know, so- <laughs> I love that so much. You know, I have to say, before we start talking about the book, that the only reason why you sounded so good was because I work with a journalist and producer named Andrew Gill and PRX, Public Radio Exchange. And they, I've learned so much about storytelling. I wish I would have worked with them before I wrote the book because they're extraordinary. So I have to just give a shout out right away to Andrew and the entire crew. But yes, I am so excited to be talking with you. You're, you, I knew that you would be someone who'd be super fun to talk with about this because I've heard you. It's like the, that rock world is so firmly embedded in your identity. You make comments about it all the time. All the time. And I was like, he's going to, he's going to bring some great stories. And you really did. So I'm (laughs) I'm excited to be here. I tell people all the time that this work is just a continuation of so much of like that rebellious evangelical music I grew up on that that was simultaneously paradoxically rebellious but also very safe if that makes sense you know right and so right. it's it's I'm looking forward to having this conversation because there's so much to unpack so much to talk about I am kind of curious I mean you're obviously a scholar you do amazing work what drew you to spending scholarly time and giving a scholarly <laughs> effort to question. unpacking CCM and that 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 to me in my head, being not the academic in this conversation, I go, what scholar wants to talk about fun things? Don't you guys, aren't you guys talking about like the Greek and Hebrew and the Bible? Like, like why this book and why now? Oh, thank you so much. That's a great question. And to be fair, when I was pitching this book at university presses as a scholarly book, editors asked me the same question. A lot of them were like, I don't understand why this would be serious work. And I think that in, in one sentence, I think I'd have to say, because although contemporary Christian music can be silly, people can think of it as kitsch or even cringy, it is very serious and very powerful. Mm. And as an instrument of power in people's personal formation, in their social formation, I wanted to explore it, treat it seriously. Because even though, I mean, I, I've talked with so many people who have been maybe like even a little bit embarrassed, some people who are like proud, very excited to talk about their experiences with Christian rock and or contemporary Christian music. For every person, it it made a mark in their lives. And I wanted to give it that respect, I think. Other forms of music have gotten much more serious scholarly treatment and contemporary Christian music hasn't. And I mean, there have been a few, but it's a much much smaller group of scholars have shared this this interest. I don't want to imply that no one has written about it, but you know, compared to like just, you know, other other genres. So I wanted to yeah. to treat it very seriously and it was so much fun. I want the people to know that it saved my soul, but I still like to listen to the radio. They say rock and roll is wrong, we'll give you one more chance. I say I feel so good, I got to get up and dance. I know what's right, I know what's wrong. I don't feel 
I think the hardest part for me in this conversation is where do you start? Because contemporary Christian music, I hate to tell the audience this, but you know, bands like Under Oath in their first album or Emery's album or even Point of Grace, Avalon, mm-hmm. I can go on. They're no longer right. contemporary. They're actually quite right. old. <laughs> right? right. So like, right. where do you start in, in even defining the genre in years of CCM? Wow. Yeah. So I'm, I, I took a kind of an unusual approach to it. Most people start with this hippie revival on the West coast known as the Jesus movement. Mm -hmm. And, and from, if you tell the story of what is contemporary Christian music that way, there are a lot of good reasons for doing that. One of them is the, the phrase contemporary Christian, contemporary Christian music comes from that movement in, in California mostly, but not exclusively. Anyway, you could tell the story of contemporary Christian music from that, those hippie revivals. But what I wanted to do was study contemporary Christian music as an industry. So as a business. Mm. And if you look at the people who actually manufactured, marketed, and sold what became contemporary Christian music, you have to go back a little bit further. So I actually start with the, if you think of it as a train, the tracks of that contemporary Christian music ended up going around the country and then eventually across the world, those train tracks, the the business actually starts in the early 20th century with a group of, of people who were really interested in revival. So revival is like a specific kind of religious practice that most people, if you grew up in evangelicalism, you know what it is, where there's stirring music and a preacher preaches like a really compelling emotionally, you know, get you right here in your, in your heart message, and then provides an opportunity for you to respond during a moment, usually called an altar call. So if I'm saying that to most of your listeners will know immediately and be like, why is she belaboring this point? But actually a lot of people who didn't grow up in that don't know what that is. So it's this group of people in the early 20th century who, because there were some tech changes in how music was published, were able to create print publishing. And they collected the songs that really meant a lot to them. And they created songbooks that they would use in revival meetings. And those are the people, basically them and their children and their children's children, were the people who created the business of contemporary Christian music. So that's the, that's the, that's where I start the story. So it's about 50 years earlier than, than most people when they're, when they think about it. Cause a lot of people associate contemporary Christian music with rock, but you brought up groups like Point of Grace, which it's a stretch to classify them as rock. You know, I would say <laughs> they got a much few more bangers like in there with some electric yeah. guitar, you know, steady yeah, on, has a great yeah, little guitar riff in there, you know? So yeah, yeah. But you know, there, um, or like a lot of people who, were big in contemporary Christian music world would be, I'd usually classify them more like a Southern gospel, which uses rock elements, but is typically defined differently, you know, distinctly. So in order to make sense of the diversity of what is classified as contemporary Christian music, I think you look, have to look at like how it was sold because unlike other genres that have a different way of defining themselves, you know, like it could be particular guitar sounds or a lot of times it could be like a particular like set of clothing or what, you know, like whatever the, the yeah, thing that right, signifies right. you're an in-group. Contemporary Christian music had lots of different 
versions of that, which a lot of people who were involved in the industry would get really frustrated by that. You know, like they didn't like being sold by, you know, like a heavy metal or like death metal group wouldn't necessarily relish being sold next to Bill and Gloria Gaither, but a lot of times they were, and it was like so frustrating for, for those folks. So anyway, it's really complex, but I've enjoyed it. That makes sense because I think about it like, like for example, the genre of rock, you have all these different subgenres. You have right. glam rock, classic rock now, heavy rock, et cetera. And each of those is pretty much their own industry. Like, like there's enough bands right. to fill that industry out. Right. But with CCM, that's kind of like your genre. Then you have these, these sub-genres that actually have musical genres inside of them, but they're not big enough to fill out their own entire space, right? So I'm thinking about, to your point, like you might have the four hymns of the world and the point of graces, then you have the Emery's, but there's not enough Emery's or enough four hymns to create their own genre of CCM, right? It has to live on, on underneath of that, of that bubble. Or else they, they would get placed into, into like, like, like a secular spot, which is what they're, they're trying not to do at the time, right? So I could see how they would start cross-pollinating to kind of create a, a bigger bubble of like, it's Christian. Who gives a crap about the genre? It's Christian. Is that kind of the goal, the vibe? Yeah, I think so. And, and a pretty specific version of Christian. What's interesting to me mm. is that the people who grew up really influenced by contemporary Christian music come from lots of different denominational backgrounds and non-denominational backgrounds. But the people who created contemporary Christian music actually overwhelmingly come from three different forms of mostly white evangelical Protestantism. And so what's interesting to me about that is that it is Christian, but it is actually a pretty select group that are creating most of the music. So this group of people ends up having like a huge influence over what we think of as evangelical to where you have young people who are raised in, so like Presbyterian circles or something like that, who are enjoying music and being really formed by music that was created by people who might not share the same theological background mm -hmm. that they mm -hmm. do. And so to me, that's super interesting because most people think, and I know you're going to appreciate this because you're a professional musician, you know that music is like so formative in human yeah. life, right? Yeah. But a lot of times when we study evangelical movements, we study mandates or words or dogma, and we don't necessarily think about studying, we study like the spoken word, we don't necessarily think about studying the sung word or mm -hmm. the, the ritual of like, you, you posted a while back. I don't, I hope you're okay with me bringing this up. I mean, I was going to send you a message about it, but I forgot I got distracted. Little kids. But you posted a thing about remembering the feeling of being in a worship space and like the music is swelling and you're a part of it and just, and kind of being wistful. If I could put an emotion that it seemed like mm -hmm. you were expressing yeah. for that feeling, because you know, it's really powerful, right? Did I yeah. put words in your mouth? At nope. all or no, yeah. no, I, I talk about, you know, I, I know that in our space, music in the CCM and worship space can be either neutral. Like I, it, it was a thing. I'm over it. It could be painful or it could yes. be very reminiscent. Right. And very just like, wow, that was something. And I tend to be more in that camp of, I, I reminisce in a positive yeah. way. It's very emotional for me. And also complicated, I mean, as being being a drummer in those worship spaces, was it my Tom build that was bringing in the Holy Spirit or was it just my Tom build that was making you feel it like right. the Holy Spirit was there, right? But I, I, 
most of my music, even today, like my my Apple Music for You playlist, it's routinely throwing in Under Oath, Emery. Aww. It's throwing. You know, and these are just bands that I grew up on that still mean something to me. And I, I still listen to some of my old recordings that I did in my old church life of like, I'm still proud of this, you know? And, yeah. and I, again, I wouldn't call it maybe the Holy Spirit or even God, but something special happened in those moments that moved me in a certain way that still make an impact on me today. So I think that's definitely accurate. Yeah. It's funny how that can get so easily overlooked. And, you know, I think probably in scholarly worlds, it's because we tend to give our first attention to the written word. So, you know, like if, if somebody didn't write, write it down, it didn't happen, which is why mm. a lot of really big influential groups, especially groups like Pentecostals and Charismatics get overlooked because as socially, typically they don't value the written word like a reformed person would, mm. you know? So, but what they do value is that, that experience and they know exactly how to do it, you know? <laughs> And yes. so, and so that their influence, I think, has been obscured in, at least in, in scholar circles, but I think just in our general, you know, pub, like the conversation, they get overlooked because a lot of the, the power and the things that happen, happen in that revivalist moment. to Asbury, right? I did. That was our first time we talked was about the Asbury revival yeah. and music and the revivalist ritual, like all those things. I mean, people were coming from all over the world. What was that like for you experiencing that? Like, as you are now, did you reflect yeah. on, you know, what it was like to be a child or how yeah. was that? It was complicated because I'm, I'm someone that I find myself always in this tension of what I don't want to do is become another fundamentalist that like the supernatural can't exist or that God doesn't meet people in unique ways beyond how we can understand them. But also I'm not sure if I trust that right now because of all the baggage I'm navigating from my mm. church life of like being in those moments, being convinced or telling people it was God and that God has changed their life forever only for them to go back to the same habits the next day. Right. So like I am mm. always in that tension. But being there was interesting because it taught me that it's not on me to to police people's experience. So if and I, I met a, a trans student at, at Asbury that really shaped how I was going to talk about the about the revival because they said like, "Hey, I know that Asbury, my college, is not affirming, but I feel very supported by faculty." And honestly, I met God in that room for the first time in a long time and felt like God really spoke to me. And I'm like, well far be it from me to tell you, you know, like, no, right. that wasn't God. Like if that was God, if, if, if something happened that, 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 that connected you to the infinite love at the center of the universe that, that wants to hold you great. Now that might not have, not have happened for me, but that's okay. So being in that space was interesting because I'm like, yeah, like I don't want to take people's spiritual experiences away. You know, I'm not here to do that. And also 
there is something powerful about a bunch of people in a room unified around songs that do have a spiritual element to them. I don't think it's exclusively a Christian thing, but I think it is a powerful aspect of Christianity in America. So I, I'm still sometimes we'll, we'll think about all of those elements and how I'm navigating that. But yeah, I, I would say it really lowered my level of harshness towards those experiences, mm -hmm. even though at the same time, we can say that a lot of us did experience a really twisted form of like, God is telling me to tell you to don't date this person or to do this thing, right? And, and, and that could be bad and not good. But at the yeah. same time, it wasn't always that for a lot of people, right? And that's okay too. You know, it's funny that you bring that up. I'm thinking about my dad, a very offline person who you know, I grew up in as a Pentecostal pastor's kid. And I remember going off to college. It was not a Pentecostal school. And I had heard that people did that, that somebody would be like, I, God told me I'm going to marry you. And Happened I to me twice. My, like, oh, oh, really? Wow. <laughs> it's like, well, God didn't tell me, but I was panicking because I, I really believed in hearing from God that way. So when oh, the yeah, person told absolutely. me, I was like, absolutely. my heart dropped. I'm like, God, I don't see it. Like <laughs> I had anxiety for days. Like it was really bad. Oh, anyway, okay. I so I, I kind of, you know, went to college with that on my mind. And I remember asking my dad and I was like, what should I do if someone says that? And my dad just goes, oh, easy. Just say, all right, when God tells me, I'll get right back to you. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> words of wisdom. Thanks, Love dad. it. Thanks, It dad. didn't happen to me. So yeah, luckily... <laughs> Friends, it's no secret that Christian nationalism is on the rise and threatens the rights of all of our neighbors. You also know I'm a big believer in shared values over shared beliefs, and you know that we are committed to working together with all kinds of folks to protect democracy in 2023. That's why I'm proud to let you know about the Summit for Religious Freedom hosted by Americans United taking place in Washington, D.C. April 14th through the 16th. I'm going to be there, and I'm so excited because keynote speakers include Anthea Butler, author of White Evangelical Racism, who we've had on the show before, and Representative Jamie Raskin, a vocal opponent of authoritarianism and Christian nationalism. The Summit for Religious Freedom is a big tent full of all kinds of people from different walks of life and holding different beliefs, uniting under the shared value of protecting the rights of all of our neighbors. So grab a ticket. Let's hang out and learn all about the ways we can resist Christian nationalism and protect freedom for all. Go to the srf.org for more information. And if you can't make it in person, that's okay. You can always grab a digital ticket and join us from virtually anywhere. Get it? That's thesrf.org, hosted by Americans United for Separation of Church and State, April 14th through the 16th. I'll see you there. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. The thing that you brought up that I think has just been like on my mind throughout the writing process is just the the potential of that moment. It it can be used in so many different ways. Like how you feel when you when revivalists do what they do with skill and sincerity and all of that, apart from whether or not it's God, you can recognize this is power. 
right? Like it can, it can be used yeah. in many different ways. One of the yeah. earliest deployments of it that I talk about in the book is during the temperance movement. So in the years leading up to the prohibition of the sale of alcohol, which is a really interesting time in the early 20th century, there were a lot of organizations, some of whom were the kind of conservative Protestant predecessors to what became contemporary Christian music, but not all, but they all recognized that having a meeting with really stirring music could make people do things that they wouldn't ordinarily do, like swear off of alcohol and support legislation or even amending the U.S. Constitution to make that illegal. So I, I think, you know, that is tremendous power and, and it can be used just as you said, it can be used lots of different ways. So I try to approach it, not necessarily saying whether or not it's good or bad that these things happen, but just, wow, look at what you can do. Yes, because I think for a lot of people, the concern is not that you're in this room with people you know, on an emotional high worshiping God. The concern is where that leads for these people, right? Like if you're gay, you have to be healed of your gayness or you know, in some spaces, like I, I recently went to Turning Point America Fest, you know, oh, the big Christian wow. nationalist I event. I want to find out about that. Yeah. Oh, I'll send you the video. I did a full okay. recap on it, like oh, an in-depth okay. recap. But there was this moment, right? And this is, I think, <laughs> I didn't even mean for this to happen, but it just did in this conversation. It works out so perfectly where I'm, I'm in this room of 5,000 people in this massive room watching Steve Bannon speak. Steve Bannon's like oh, this far right, you know, right. just very much a Christian nationalist, destroy our enemies kind of guy. At one point, he calls, he says that, that, that Nikki Haley is, she's the presidential candidate running in the GOP right now, that, that, that she's ambitious as a Lucifer <gasps> and that she's a viper. Okay. And the crowd, at one point, Steve goes to the crowd, you guys don't want Nikki, right? And someone yells Tucker, as in Tucker Carlson. But in the room, it sounds like oh, the person, because they want right. Tucker for, for VP, not, not, not Nikki. But in the room, it sounded like they said, F her. Right. Okay. And so the crowd starts chanting this over and over again. I'm in the room. I hear F her. I found out later on that Steve Bannon also heard them say F her. And what does Steve do? He holds out the microphone to keep them going. Right. So this whole speech happens full of dehumanization and we're coming for you and take America back. And 20 minutes later, the stage flips and a worship band comes out to sing songs to Jesus. Who was it? Do you know who it was? Was it just like a generic? Uh, it was a bit. Yeah. It, I, I, no, no. I, I, I talked to their MD afterwards, actually. It's, it's uh, this guy, uh, Generation Church in Arizona. The, oh, the pastor blocked me recently. Ryan Visconti. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so this band does this thing, right? Worshiping a Jesus who bore a cross for his enemies after watching a guy and rile up a crowd to build crosses for theirs, essentially. And so it's like, that's another good example, right? Of like, how it's not so much that, okay, we sing songs to Jesus. It's like, well, what's the context and what are we stamping as having God's approval? In this case, this rah, rah, rah event of 14,000 plus people with people on the stage dehumanizing the other, and then you stamp it with Jesus, right? So I think for a lot of people, it's as we kind of growth, go through this, this deconstruction process and we start out with, you know, oh my God, it's all toxic and horrible, which a lot of it definitely is. I think as we kind of grow and get a little more nuanced, we realize, well, maybe it's not the actual elements of songs or a band or a fog machine, but it's what it's embodying and what it's stamping as this is the will of God that becomes so problematic. Yeah, I think, I mean, 
I w- I I'm definitely going to watch that recap because I'm I'm fascinated by how how people are how skilled people can be at utilizing that form. Like it's a yeah. really old form, hundreds of years old. Basically, I think it's it's not exclusive to the United States, but it's a signature practice, you know, this practice of reviving reviving and it lends itself really well to that kind of this or that message. You know, you're either with us or against us, you're heaven or hell, you're, you know. And so hearing someone like Bannon, I think he's multi-generational Catholic, right? So he- I believe he is, yes. He doesn't necessarily come traditionally or like in the, you know, a hundred years ago, Catholics would not have been welcome in those kind of revivalist spaces, or they would have to have some sort of, you know, conversion experience. But, but so to hear, like, he knows what to do, right? Because it's so American. Like he understands the form, he knows how to use it and also understands rightly that it has been deployed for political projects many times in the past and not just conservative ones either like that form yeah. of revivalism where you get you understand how to you know get people riled up and and get them you know get them doing things like energized for a particular task and i think you know it the right especially with those kinds of conferency type things have really doubled down on that form you can totally see it yeah. working Right. I yeah. mean, they're, they're so good totally. at it <laughs> in terms of they're just so like good at it. the yeah. execution is, well, you experienced it. It sounds like it was kind of overwhelming. <laughs> in the it moment. was my second year there. I, I go every wow. year because it, it, it helps you keep track of Christian nationalism. And there's a lot more that happened that is even beyond that. But I agree. And to your other point, was it Charles Finney, the revivalist who was like in t- very anti-slavery, right? And like he used his revivals to push a narrative of like, we need to end slavery in America. Is that is that the case or am I wrong on that? Well, okay. So one of the things that I think is really interesting is people like Finney, some revivalists used the revivalist moment to be anti-slavery. And then some of them used it to not. Right. And so, yeah, so I think that the, the, how powerful that moment can be. And Finney was super famous for his really, he had these huge eyes. I usually, when I teach about him in a class, I usually show um, a picture of his eyes to my students because he was really famous for like being this really striking preacher. So you can see that it's not just the music, but it's also the preaching. Let me just ask you, like, as a, as a, a professional musician, did you ever find yourself in the position of being the Finney also? Were you, were you like doing music and preaching at the same time? I have, I've spoken a few times, but I was never the preacher. Okay. Okay. I feel like you could do it though. You seem like you've got the That the was skills. what I was told, but I, I, I never got a degree. <laughs> I don't know. It just was like. I, I, I preach now on my podcast, you know? So. Okay. Okay. So, well, I mean, I can hear it. I can hear it. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, he, he was an abolitionist. So, okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. I was just trying to make the point that like, you know, again, 
I, if, if, I'll put it this way. I went to, I'm not going to name the church because even though Uh-oh. they're very public, I, should be, <laughs> I, I, I like being extra cautious because I know this person personally. Yeah. I went to a church uh, this past year and they had an event that, that was designed to help parents who had queer kids maintain both their faith and their child's sexuality without deciding oh, between the two. I heard about really that powerful. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and they had a, a smaller, they, they, they do this event pretty regularly in smaller capacity. And I went out one year or, or one month and um, they had a panel of queer people They had a trans man and a, 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 a lesbian woman and a, a gay man. And I'm sitting there and they're doing a worship set. And there's the table of queer folks who are just worshiping their hearts out. And all of a sudden I'm like, you know, it, it, it changed me a little bit, a little bit because I thought, wow, these songs have a new meaning now. Like when we're talking about the unconditional love of God, I'm looking at a group of queer people who are here accepted in love for who they are. This is really, this is, wow, this is like Rocky fuel for me. You know, it's like, this is, this is what I thought it was always about in a sense, right? And again, I'm just trying to draw the distinction for the audience of like, at least for me, in some of these ways, even though maybe even the motivation isn't good, seeing some of these things almost used in a way that that does promote when we say unconditional love of God, the actual unconditional love of God, et cetera, was interesting for me. But what's also interesting, and I'll let you riff off of this, I went to a very progressive UMC church the other day, and they sang a Bethel song. And I'm like, Aha, wow, this just everywhere. shows, right? Yeah, how pervasive this industry has become in the worship space where Bethel was not affirming. Bethel, Bill Johnson thinks that the election was stolen. I have a clip of him saying that in, 20, right. in 2020. And, and Brian Johnson is, is as MAGA as you can get. He actually had to stop posting online. But this church doesn't even <laughs> think about that. They're like, oh, Bethel sings a good song. We'll sing the song too, right? What so it's song interesting was it? To see, Do you remember? Oh, uh, I forgot which yeah. one it was, but it was oh, definitely a Bethel song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. You can always, you can feel it. You can yeah, always you... tell Bethel. It's the same. It works, but it's the same formula. Signature. Yeah. <laughs> Signature. You know, I. it's so interesting that you bring that up. By the way, I have my students go to different types of worship services. And one time we all went to mass together for an Ash Wednesday service, which I thought would be like an ultra Roman Catholic experience for them. And wouldn't you know, right when they get their ashes, they're singing, Oh, come to the altar. Um, No, they are not. Oh yeah. And I'm going to tell you something because in that context, like a really high theology of the Eucharist, it like come to the altar has a totally different valence, you know? So (sighs) I had students who were crying and one of my students who was, had been, had had kind of a terrible experience on staff at a huge mega church was like kind of undone by it. It was very unsettling for them to just be like, I don't know what to make of this. It, it messed with me. Um, but anyway, so to your point, yeah, it's, it, it's everywhere. Every now and then when one of these places, these sort of worship houses that, um, have become almost like mini labels and promotional companies and marketing firms, as well as churches and Bible colleges. And they're like, they're like a multi conglomerate, whatever church. When, yeah. when those churches have scandals, which happens from time to time, fairly regularly, oftentimes like there's like, right. There's like a, and I understand why that there's that feeling of disgust or, or that it's wrong in some way to participate. I just always have the thought it's very hard to do that because of just right. everything that you said, even though this congregation, but I mean, it's, if we're talking about systemic problems, there are also, I mean, it, it's so complex, 
right? So if you want to, if, if we think of these places as businesses, and in many respects, they are, they are industries, yep, totally. then we have to audit all of our participation in the American marketplace. And that's complicated, you know? And I'm not saying it's not worthwhile, but I am saying right, it's right. hard to do. <laughs> well, I mean, think about it, right? There are pretty much, there's the big three of, of worship music. You have Elevation, Hillsong, and Bethel. Now you have smaller ones like Vertical Church Band and Red Rocks, et cetera. But like as far as what's the average Joe at an evangelical church singing, it's most likely one of those three artists. I'd put uh, Maverick City in there too. They're, oh, they're Maverick, like, yeah, you're right. Maverick has They're in the running yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, for sure. But I say that because I have wrestled with the same thing where it's like, I mean, Hillsong is a good example. Brian Houston is a narcissistic, you know, person who's now starting a new digital church. Like, what are we doing here? And what's the play? Like, like, like the, if a if I go to a church that that's progressive and affirming and loving, and they sing some Hillsong tune, what a beautiful name! Am I like, oh my god, they're so problematic because they're singing a song whose pastor, you know, now is has been found out to be a narcissist. I can go, I go both ways where I'm like, well, I want to have understanding and empathy and realize that it's just to them, it might just be a song and no big deal. While also recognizing that the way we change things is by, you know, finding new paths and different ways of, of navigating that at the same time, do you know how hard it is to teach a congregation, a new song that no one knows? Oh, it's oh. really freaking hard. Right. And so <laughs> when these true. songs are kind of in the bubble that most people in the audience are already around, it just solves a lot of those problems. So anyway, I go between pragmatic Gosh. versus the ethical nature of those things, but it can be tricky for sure. It is really hard. And you know, this is where I'm always really glad not to be an ethicist or a moral <laughs> theologian <laughs> because I don't really know, to be totally honest, I don't know what what the the moral or ethical way to navigate the American market is. I mean, even yeah. if it's just like, what kind of clothes do I buy? We shouldn't use fast fashion. We shouldn't like, what kind of food should I feed my children? What kind of yes. these, I mean, I think that that's from my perspective, that's why it's helpful to look at this as a business because then that puts it in the same categories of what kind of cars we drive and what kind of, and I do think that there's something to be gained for, from giving that deep consideration and then also acknowledging the complexities and the fact that some consumers are more inf informed than others. So yeah. The people who would identify in the the new evangelical, post-evangelical, ex-evangelical type crowd, and I'm not trying to put everybody in the same, but if you're in one of those three categories or deconstructed, I would guess that you would be a little bit more informed about those, the kind of ins and outs of that market. Yes. If you're a mainliner, you might not have any idea, <laughs> right. you know, that, that, right. you know, you might just be like, None. wow, what a great song, you know? So, right. and, and so I oh, do come think to the altar. <laughs> it's gorgeous. I mean, boy, I'll tell you it's what, gorgeous. when I was hearing it, I, I was moved, you know? So I, I do think that that's where, you know, at least for me, and I'm, again, I'm not a theologian, but I try to be gracious with people because what might be, just exceedingly triggering and just a, a reminder of legit horrible abuse for one person could be just like a good song, you know, yeah. for another. Yeah. And so it, that just makes, I mean, it's really complex. 
to me, Spencer Helms, the author of Faith Unleavened, and I'm super excited about Project Amplify, not only because I get to join my homie Tim in this endeavor, but because it's it's been time for a long time for those of us who've become convinced that God is not a weapon, that nobody owns our story of faith or theology, to become resourced enough to push back against harmful, dehumanizing narratives that are being touted in the name of Christianity and in the name of Jesus. So would love for you all to click this link and join us trying to turn the tide and take back some of the narrative about faith and about God. See you there. I want to get your thoughts as someone who wrote a book on this. I want to talk sure. about about how the industry has shifted so much because I, I now I sound like like the old person, but when I was younger growing up, you know, <laughs> I mean, for me, like CCM being a seventeen year old drummer, right? I quickly moved on from Avalon, Twilight Paris, Point of Grace. For him, I quickly found Emery. Supertones, oh, right. mm-hmm. um, Slick Shoes, MXPX, Five Iron Frenzy, Pax 217, The Wedding, Under Oath. I mean, I Falling Up, that's another real deep cut. You know, I found a lot of bands that were classic crime. Sorry, this is just fun to name how many <laughs> bands I actually know. Back from, You're good. Back in the that's day. pretty Earth good. Earthsuit, Mute Mac. Oh, you know? there you go. Uh, oh, boy. Yeah, there we go. We're really yeah. going there. But, you know, there was like in, in the heyday of like this rock and roll explosion, right, where people like me were finding our rebelliousness being channeled into these bands, some of mm-hmm. which looking back, some of the lyrics, I'm like, whoa, this stuff was pretty progressive for its time. In other ways, I was like, yeah, this is pretty typical fundamentalism. You know, like I think about this song by Supertones Revolution where they're yelling no compromise, right? No compromise, no compromise. I'm like, you know, it's interesting because hearing that now in, in this weird way, what drove me to start TNE was n- no compromise. Like on my values, I was taught by this evangelical movement and then feeling like the movement itself compromised. But at the same time, I've also shifted my views on things like queer inclusion, right? Where where my tradition would still be very against that. But I'm, I've, I've quote unquote compromised and changed my perspective there. So it's interesting to hear these songs in like a new way. But there, there seems to be this massive evolution where that was kind of dominating the 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 tour circuit i mean there was the c-spot rock tour with reliant k and supertones and john rubin that i saw many times right that doesn't seem to be a thing anymore right and now it seems to be like these worship bands this more Mm -hmm. liturgical choir type movement is really what's in and kind of dominating the k-love and the tour circuit any thoughts on that evolution and, might, oh, and, and what might have led to it? I mean, maybe you have many. I don't know, but yeah, I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, I love this question. Now, I'll start to get really nerdy and just stop me when okay. you think I should. <laughs> I think I'll, I trust your, your hosting skills. That is one of the biggest questions. Does contemporary Christian music, as you experienced it as a young person, does it still exist now? Right. And I argue that for the most part, no. That that world that was in many ways a fairly discreet world, like 
uh, the word that people use so many times when they responded to, I created a survey for, while I was researching this book and over 1200 people responded and the word bubble comes up tons of times in the survey. So the idea that there was this world that was, you know, some people had musical taste that, that went outside of contemporary Christian music, but that there was an, an entertainment culture that was fairly self-contained and that there were Christian clubs and Christian coffee shops and youth groups and churches that did concert series and all that, that has declined like precipitously. So, and, and you're exactly right. Now the bands that are doing stadium tours are worship groups. There's yeah. a whole thing there about how much it costs to put on a stadium tour and how much you can charge to worship. But I, I, I saw, I saw Brandon Lake and Chris Tomlin on tour. I, I met like the production manager. So she oh, invited really? me out and it was oh, a stadium wow. tour. Well, I, as a musician, I nerded out. That was great. I was behind, I was backstage the whole time, oh, but yeah, it was a huge tour in, in the local stadium. It was massive. So the thing, yeah. So in, in another era, the people who would be doing that would be the the primary function that they would play would be to be entertainment, you know, to be a form yes. of Christian entertainment. Yes. That's and you right. exactly said, you know, now it's liturgical. It's the idea is that it is a either a reproduction or a facsimile, an echo of what you would experience in a church service. And there's it's a blurry line between, you know, what you experience when you buy tickets to go see that and then what you're experiencing on any given Sunday morning or church worship service. But so why did that what was behind that shift? There were yes. so many things that happened. I think one of the biggest ones was the internet. The interweb burst the the discrete world, right? Yeah. So young people now, it is so hard for youth group, youth groups and parents and concerned caregivers to censor what kids have access to in part mm. because the internet. You know, like it's just so it's so easy for kids to get outside of that world. And it it used to be you kind of have to work for it a little bit, you know, to like sneak top 40 radio or something like that. And there are lots of stories of that I have in the book of kids who are trying to like get around their parents or get around the culture of their their um, church to find mainstream forms of of entertainment. And now, my first yellow card CD was, was my first secular CD I ever bought, and I hid it? it from my parents. Good. Of course. Oh yeah, yeah. I was well. They, they weren't even like bad parents. They were just very strict in that right. way for, with music. So I was just concerned about getting in trouble for having yellow card in my house. So I felt so devious. I drove. I, I walked to my little town CD person. store, paid wow. like twenty five bucks because it was a small town, you know, third, you know, mom and pop shop, and I was like, ooh, a yellow card CD, Ocean Avenue. That is so devious. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. So there are a lot of people. Yeah. There are a lot of people who, who young people who did that kind of stuff, but you did have to try, you know, now it's, it's much harder to regulate, you know, especially most young people have phones, you know, how are you going to, to censor? So the internet undermined a lot of that. And also a lot about how people worship. So the forms of worship that, that, sustained CCM, contemporary Christian music, depended on a circuit of churches. So you had a small church, medium-sized yeah. church, large church. And you know this as a professional musician, it was very common for people to start in the smaller churches, work up to a medium-sized church, then mm -hmm. hit the big time, get to a big church, and then a conference. And then, you know, right. and then eventually a very, very few of them would get their own stadium tours. But a lot of people, like a whole industry was sustained by that circuit. And the way that 
evangelicals in particular, but a lot of Americans worship now has consolidated. So the mid-level church doesn't exist in the same way that it used to. So that development network, and then also if you put on top of that denominational things, things like summer camp has been in huge decline. Youth groups don't meet or aren't structured in the same way that they were 20, 40 years ago. And so it's really the the architecture that created contemporary music just doesn't exist now. Then all the things that killed the entertainment culture have been really good for the stadium worship world. Because now these, like, as Americans congregate in larger worship settings, those churches then, they have, you, you experienced it, they have the resources that they can compete with most mainstream concert venues. Oh, for sure. My church was was a mid-sized church, about 600 people a week. And we were easily running tech that that would rival. I mean, we had people come on tour to our church because we had such great tech. I mean, no doubt right. about that. I That's the thing I miss the most is playing with like a high tech, you know, in-ears and Ableton. And like, it was, it was great. Yeah, yeah. That's, and so that's, I think that's, you know, a lot of people look at theological reasons or, you know, there's a lot of lessons to be drawn, but I think some of the just, some of it is just pragmatic. Like this is how yeah. people do stuff now. And there are theologies to be teased out from that. But the most reasonable explanation is that it's not a business that can be sustained anymore. So when you have groups like, like Five Iron Frenzy, who are, boy, if there is a group that has more dedicated fans, I would like to know because yeah, I don't think right. there is. <laughs> they are diehards. Those die guys are hard. die hard, which it's, I, yeah. And I can totally see why, but those, those folks came up in those networks, right? Like they, bands like that, they can't make a living now. I don't think. There has to be probably also an element of the fact that a lot of these genres have just kind of fallen out of style in general, right? Yes. Like ska, the ska explosion happened in secular culture. Then like the Five Iron Frenzies and Supertones and the the W's, which is a little more swing. But, you know, there were groups sure, like that. Sure, yeah. There was the there was like that that heavy rock disturbed vibe. Then you had Skillet kind of come out of that, right? And Under Oath and Emery. And a lot of that music, it just, even in the secular world, I mean, it has its own devoted like subculture but it's not in the mainstream like how it used to be even pop punk which is now making a slight comeback also really fell off for a while right so i think there there also has to be this acknowledgement that yes in my experience ccm was really parroting what what, whatever was happening in the secular trend and then just kind of making their own christian version of it yes and to a related point so 100 i agree with agree with you hundred percent. A related point is that the demographics of mainstream music changed and contemporary Christian music did not. Mm. By that, I mean, top 40 radio got more and more diverse and contemporary yep. Christian music did not. So rock, which, you know, did not start out to be primarily a white artistic form became that way. And I think it's no coincidence that rock is alive and well in predominantly white spaces in worship music. Whereas there are, there are very few 
you know, comparison chart people. So for those, I'm sure everyone who listens to this podcast would know, but everything that you said is true, that contemporary Christian music usually lagged a little bit behind mainstream music. And so whatever mainstream music was doing, you could count on about 18 months to three years after that, coming up with a contemporary Christian music alternative. And I was talking with someone who was like, I don't think, you know, look at people like Lauren Daigle, contemporary Christian music is still around. And I said, no, I'll give you an example of why there's no Christian K-pop group. Like mm, there's no, right. you know, there's if, no plus one. There, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if there was, if, if contemporary Christian yeah. music was still around, there would be these, you know, versions of those groups. Now watch, somebody's probably going to find a really obscure instance of that. Well, but, and, but and I to think that that's, point, yeah, briefly, Lauren Daigle, she's not well supported in like the actual Mainstream Christian space. bubble. No, oh, no. Right, I mean, a right. lot of people, no, a lot of people think that, that, that because she was kind of ambiguous on on queer inclusion and other things that she is, you know, liberal and not. I mean, Elisa Childers has called her out before. So like even Lauren Daigle, she's I, I don't think that she represents the to the average evangelical like, oh, when what I think about Christian, Christian music? contemporary music, I think about Lauren Daigle. I think she's more in that secular space than she is in CCM. That's just my opinion, of course. But, well, I, yeah. I I think you make a lot of really good points. And what, I think one of the, a couple of years ago, I was in, invited to Baylor University to give a talk about some of this research, which was really fun because Baylor is one of the the institutions really that created contemporary Christian music. So I'm there at this university and a bunch of undergrads were offered extra credit to come listen to me talk. And so I I had this whole room full of like 18 to 22 year olds and professors and maybe a couple of staff, I'm not sure. But I asked them for a show of hands, who knows what contemporary Christian music is? And no one in the college age range, very few of them raised their hands. So even just the, the thing that used to be really for many people, you know how they joke about some, something or other becomes your entire personality. Like for yes. a lot of people, contemporary Christian music was their entire personality and that was Me. not uncommon. Right. And so now young people who are by and large, if, if they're attending Baylor university and they're Texans, they're very familiar with evangelical culture. Chances are. And they did not even know what that was. So right. I think that that's, to me, that's an anecdotal evidence that that world that was so energizing and meaningful for many people for good and bad, it doesn't really exist in the same way that it did. Now, there are lots of other ways, you know, there are other forms of raising evangelical youths that still exist. Like one is sports culture. That's alive and well. And like kind of evangelical yes. sporting yeah world. So it's not like that project is over really, but the music part has really shifted. And you're right. It's almost all, many of the new acts are now in that more liturgical space. There are still like legacy acts, like Toby Mac is still charting and winning awards and newsboys going on tour. Newsboys. Yes. They're kind of like, you know, the, the group that keeps on, you know, reforming. But right. I mean, yeah. their their library is massive. When you think about, it. they've been around what since the late eighties. You know, yeah, was it early nineties yeah, they hopped yeah. on? Yeah, and they've been around. Yeah, they've for a evolved long time. a ton. Yeah. 
it's interesting because I, it, you're right. It really was my entire identity. Like I found myself fully wearing the under of t-shirts, having that like punk rock vibe. I had a mohawk for a lot of years because I love Travis Barker, but also was a drummer playing under oath music. So like, you know, I just, that was my, and also that reflected a lot of my evangelical rebel values in the sense of evangelicalism was like, Hey, you know, what's really countercultural being pro-life. So here you go. You're pro-life. Hey, you know, what's really countercultural like insert next big thing here. Right. right I mean, I right. had the shirt that said in all caps, abortion is homicide. And on the back, it would say, you will not silence my message. You will not mock my God. You will stop killing my generation. And it, I think it was the Rock for Life organization that made the shirt. And I would skateboard around town wearing that thing loud and proud like this is how I give my middle finger to the man is by having these stances, right, that my tradition taught me were completely countercultural while also being steeped in a sort of culture that I wasn't even aware of, right? So it was yeah. so that music kind of, and I'm, I'm not saying, by the way, that all those bands were pro-life. I'm just saying in my head, it all got amalgamated into this ethos of, right, I'm listening to rock music. It's super heavy. It's already countercultural, broadly speaking. I mean, even my secular friends aren't listening to Under Oath because they scream too much. And now I'm having like these certain ideas behind it that, hey, prayer should be back in school or see you at, at, at the poll should be whatever Christian's doing or abortion's murder, things like that. They all kind of went together. Yeah. And I, I appreciate you bringing that up because I've got a little section in the book that talks about how the, the particular moral or ethical ideas that, that are attached to a kind of aesthetic. So like a, a style, a sound, how they are retooled in evangelical spaces. So you, everything that you just said, I, I think really sums up what that the Christian metal or like the kind of edgier, you know, you could put punk ska, like all those kinds of things kind of in, in a broad umbrella, of course, I'm sure there are super fans who are thinking like, no, you can't, but, but oh, yeah, anyway. all this hate mail. You yeah, know what, yeah. Tim? <laughs> I know. I'll tell you something else. But 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 I think market-wise, they were treated as kind of one group of of folks, in part because unlike a lot of contemporary Christian music, the the less edgy sonically stuff, it was m more purchased by the actual young people. So a lot of times, at least in the minds of marketers, groups like DC Talk, who were much more mainstream and very, you know, Billy Graham has you on stage you're not super edgy. Right? right. And so, I mean, he, his like diehard old timey Billy Graham people probably thought he was edgy, but oh, so, <laughs> which is why DC talk was so helpful for him. But anyway, so the, a lot of that music was purchased or at least marketed to moms, to mm. bookstore, Christian bookstores, where the core customer was a suburban white mom. And so those, like those sounds in particular tend to be less edgy. But the groups that you were just listing, those ones were kind of distinct in terms of the business model because a lot of times it was young people, a lot of a lot of young men who would nerd out about this stuff, who would get, there was a pretty lively zine culture. So they'd have these like DIY magazines and they get super excited about their bands and it was their music, you know, it really. Yep. And so I think that, that that kind of stuff, one of the surprising and interesting things is it could be, it could really undermine mainstream evangelical ideas like Five Iron Frenzy songs. You know, they're so bouncy and happy, but a lot of them are very, very countercultural. You know, for example, a lot of 
contemporary Christian music is super patriotic and they're like directly critiquing manifest destiny and stuff like that. So some of it right. could be really countercultural, but yep. then a lot of it was a reinforcement of traditional conservative evangelical stuff. So yes. that, you know, that t-shirt and stuff is, I'm gonna guess there are so many people who had that exact same t-shirt, right? And it was it, loud. It was oh. huge font, like 400,000 size font. Like the, from, from my neck to like my belly button was the whole statement. You couldn't miss it. You could be a mile down the road and see my shirt. That's how loud it was. <laughs> right. So that, that to me, I mean, it's been a while actually since I've seen one of those kinds of shirts. So oh, even I, even that business. I think I was the last person wearing one. <laughs> <laughs> like it died with me. Thankfully. But yeah, so that was not uncommon at all and I think, you know, for some young people it was such a feeling of empowerment, you know, to to say this is who I am and and then I think, you know, a lot of folks when they look back on how young they were and how serious the things that they were saying, you know, some people still feel the same way and then other people now think, I'm not sure that that was advisable. You know, when we had um, Brad Onishi and I, I need to share it on social media, but he, he talked about how he had a t-shirt company called sick innovations. He sent me, and I'm going to, I'm going to post it. Maybe when this episode goes live, he, he sent me, he found one of his old t-shirts and he sent me no. a picture of it. So no, yeah. yeah. You know, it is interesting that, that whole world, it, it still exists. But the the Christian bookstores that created them have have really declined because for a, a while, totally decades, like the hub of that was, I'm gonna guess the bookstore, right? Where you? Yeah, I mean, well, I, I'm not sure where I got that shirt, uh, but I will tell you that I discovered Emory in the Christian bookstore down the road from me at my local mall. That's now out of business. I discovered <laughs> Under Oath there. I discovered the Supertones there. I discovered all, and I, you know, the, this was this was right as Napster and Kazaa was taking off. So I was still too young to be using it at the time. So right. I just discovered new music by just going to the bookstore, putting on those headphones, playing, you know, D seven or E eight, and right. listening to whatever album it was, and saying, "Oh, this sounds cool. I'll I'll buy it." And then we we'd rock it on the way home. That that's just kind of how it worked. Yeah, that's another reason I think why the world of contemporary Christian music has suffered so much because those yeah. bookstores were such important cultural centers and, and hubs. And a lot of bands would, would be introduced to communities by a concert at a Christian bookstore. And so the fact that those bookstores, and that's another casualty of the internet really. Yeah, um, but totally. the fact that those bookstores don't exist anymore means that it's harder to discover those kinds of, of artists. People still find them, but without the, evangelical gatekeepers it looks it starts yes. to look a lot different yeah for sure well leah it's great talking to you and having you on the podcast your book is coming out so february fun. 1st right two one yep. is that when it comes out yeah so that should be out either now or very close to now so make sure friends you go pick it up it was great having you on the podcast where can folks find you do you have your own podcast do you do your own public work share your your links thank you so much they can find me on most social media platforms at dr leahpain.com, Dr. Uh, leahpain.com, which is only because there was another artist who has my same name who had oh. the, the Leahpain. And they can find me there. I co-host a podcast on religion and pop culture called Weird Religion and a second season of Rock That Doesn't Roll, which is about the fans of contemporary Christian music that will be coming out this next spring. Love that. And make sure you call me when you Thank do you. the worship music one. I got a lot of thoughts on that. So. Oh, yes. <laughs> that would be fun. So much fun. You can fun. nerd out right, again. Listen, it, 
Yes, for sure. Keep in touch. I'm sure I'll talk to you again soon behind the scenes, and I'll send you that Turning Point USA recap video so you can have a heart attack like how I did for two and a half days. (laughs) I can't wait to watch. Sounds good. Talk to you soon. Thanks. 